morning once again, brothers and sisters. Please open up in your Bibles to the prophet Obadiah, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The prophet Obadiah. Speaking of the prophets, the prophet Amos, he warns of a famine, and he says it's a famine not of bread or water, but of hearing the word of God. May that not be said of us, brothers and sisters. We have the word of God. Let us hear the word of God. And we will do that this morning by looking at Obadiah, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which means we're in verse 5, and by God's grace, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9. So let us hear the word of the Lord. God says to us, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. We become what we worship. Let me say that again. We become what we worship. And, and, And this is a truth that is found throughout Scripture perhaps most notably in Psalm 115. This is what we read in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, saying, we're talking about idols. We're talking about the work of men's hands. They have all the signs of life, but in reality, they are dead. They're lifeless. Then comes the punchline. Next verse, Psalm 115, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So you and I, if we give ourselves over to idols, what will we become? We will become what we worship. In the case of idols, we'll be dead. Again, we'll have all the signs of life, right? We have mouths and eyes and ears and nose and feet, and and we we have all this stuff. But at the end of the day, we will be lifeless. We will be hollow. We will be dead caverns, just like those same idols we worship. Uh, something of, of a very silly example of this. I remember some years ago, uh, we had a family member of ours who went back to Minnesota for a month or two. And this family member had family there that she hadn't seen in 20 or 30 years. And so she went back to reconnect. So she was gone for a couple of months in Minnesota. And when she came back, you know what? She talked funny. Because people in Minnesota don't know how to speak English. It's a small example. What we give ourselves to, what we surround ourselves with, what we spend time with, 
what we worship begins to affect us. Now, on a much more serious note, the true and living God, He has very little patience for idolatry. In fact, as you will know, idolatry is a breach of the very first commandment. We are told, you shall have no other gods before me. So, so anything that even smell of idolatry is, is flatly and clearly prohibited. Fair enough, you say. But, but why does a true and living God, why, uh, why does he take such a, a, a affront to idolatry? What does he do in the face of it? And the answer, of course, is that he brings judgment. And this is something I want to make sure that we don't miss. This is really important. When God brings judgment for idolatry, he not only drops the hammer upon those who are worshiping idols, he also brings judgment upon the idols themselves. So think back to the Exodus, when Israel was under the thumb of Pharaoh. Remember those ten plagues? You have to understand, those were not just sort of random phenomenons. No, each of the ten plagues was targeted not just at Egypt, but at Egypt's false gods. Or you might think back to the whole golden calf incident. Not only did God judge his people for their idolatry, but what? The golden calf was to be destroyed. It, too, was judged. Or fast forward to the prophet Samuel. You remember this story that we read in 1 Samuel 5 when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And as a sign of their triumph, you remember what they do with the Ark of the Covenant? Well, they put it into the temple of Dagon, their false god, as if to suggest that Dagon has defeated Yahweh. Well, no one thought that for very long. Remember the next morning when they go into the temple of Dagon? What did the Philistines discover? Well, there is Dagon toppled over, prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant, as if Dagon was worshiping Yahweh. So as you have to do with all false gods, they quickly scurry, they pick him up, they set him back on his pedestal, they say, don't do that again, that looks bad, and they carry on with their way. Well, the next morning, what happens? Here is Dagon, again, fallen off his pedestal. This time, his head is cut off from his body along with his hands. Dagon is utterly defeated. So here's my point. The true and living God doesn't just, he doesn't just judge people. He judges those people's false gods. And false gods are not necessarily these little wooden statues that we put upon our mantles. Idols are those things that we're trusting in, that we're delighting in, that we're finding our very identity in. False gods are those that we look for, that we look to, that, that we think are ultimately going to provide for us and care for us and protect us. And the point is, those false gods, they are reduced to nothing. This is the way of the true and living God. Perhaps at this juncture you scratch your head and you wonder, well, why does God cut down idolaters and their idols? What's the big deal with all of this? 
And the big deal is that idols challenge the very supremacy of God. What idols seek to do is take God down from his throne and put themselves in his place. And what you have to understand, if you hear nothing else, is that God will have no competition. And the very hint of competition, God will expose that false God for what it is. He will destroy it. Dagon will be laying prostrate before him, head and hands removed. Now, that is a long but necessary introduction as we turn to the prophet Obadiah this morning. And that's because what we are going to witness is God's pledge. What is God's pledge? His pledge is to destroy Edom. And in doing so, he will also destroy their idols. He's going to pull out the rug from underneath of them. He's going to show them and us how futile it is to trust in or treasure anything other than God. So let's begin with Edom's destruction and how it is put before us by the prophet this morning. Obadiah demonstrates Edom's destruction by employing two pictures, one of the home and one of the field. Both are found in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, we read, if thieves came to you, that, that is to you, Edom, if thieves came to you, if, if plunderers came by night, and then you have this sort of parenthetical statement relishing in the destruction of Edom, right? How you have been destroyed, right? But let's skip over that real quick and look at the next line. Speaking of these thieves, that they came to you, would they not steal only enough for themselves? You get the picture? If, if you are home and you are asleep and a thief breaks in, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to, he's going to creep around all quiet-like and he's going to steal only what is most valuable. So he's going to look for cash or, or jewelry or electronics. But he's not going to steal everything, Right? When you awake, the curtains are still going to be on the wall, right? Family pictures will still be hanging. The wallpaper is going to be there. The kid's Lego set will still be in the corner. There'll be stuff left over. Not so with Edom. Or consider the second picture, that of the field. Still, this time at the end of verse 5, same idea, if, if grape gatherers came to you, again, speaking of Edom, if they, if they came, would they not leave gleanings? Now, to make sense of this, we have to have some understanding of agriculture in the ancient world. A landowner would have a field of, of say, grapes, and, and what he would do is he would hire a crew to come in and to pick all of those grapes. And they'd have equipment and, and people and jobs, and, and for the ancient world, it was a pretty well-oiled machine. But according to God's law, they were not supposed to pick the field clean, right? If nothing else, they would leave the edges of the field so that the poor of the land could come in and glean, so that they could pick the food for them, the crop for themselves and, and have food. This is one of the ways that God took care of the poor in ancient Israel. You might think of Ruth, right? This is what Ruth did in Boaz's field. But Obadiah's point with both of these pictures is utter and complete destruction. 
The point is that God's judgment would leave Edom utterly decimated, right? The thieves, they at least have enough common decency to, I don't know, to leave doorknobs or something like that. Or the the grape gatherers, they're not going to pick the entire field clean. But God is saying here that the thieves will leave nothing. The grape gatherers will leave nothing. Edom will be picked clean. It's a picture of total eradication. There'll be nothing left but dust, and the wind will come in and blow them away. Now, in addition to those two horrific pictures, I would also draw your attention to just sort of the haunting language that the prophet uses. He pulls no punches when he describes the fate of Edom. Follow along in the middle of verse 5. Look at some of this language. How you have been destroyed. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged. Verse 7, they have deceived you. Verse 7 again, they have prevailed against you. Still in verse 7, they have have set a trap beneath you. Verse 8 now, the wise men of Edom God will destroy Beginning of verse 9, their mighty men shall be dismayed. End of verse 9, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. I ask you, church, do you feel the weight of this? God's pledge is that Edom will be completely destroyed. Nothing left. They are going to be wiped off the planet. But to return to a previous point, it's not just Edom who will be judged. It's also their gods. Or to say it a little bit differently, what's in front of us this morning is not just the result of their judgment, but also the reason for it. We have to have this settled in our minds right now. Idolatry provokes God's judgment. And that was true of ancient Eden, and it is equally true of you and I today. Now, our passage, it puts its thumb on four idols, four false gods, four pseudo-saviors Edom trusted in, four phony gods that made them feel safe and secure for good gifts that they turned upside down and made into gods. The first is wealth. Wealth. Look at verse 6. We read, How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Here's what we know. The land of Edom, it was known not only for its high mountains, but also its deep pockets. Historians tell us that it was an incredibly wealthy nation, especially considering its relatively small size. And there are several factors that contributed to the way that Edom amassed wealth. I, I will spare you all of the details, but suffice it to say, there was all sorts of trade routes that kind of went through Edom, and, and also Edom, uh, they, they trafficked in steep taxation, and they did a bunch of pillaging on their own. So, so the point is, Edom had deep pockets. 
Here's the problem, though. The great wealth that they had, it had fanned into flame a spirit of self-sufficiency. And what you and I need to understand right now is that self-sufficiency is antithetical to God and His gospel. Self-sufficiency is an enemy of God and His gospel. And so what does the prophet proclaim? Well, Esau, just as you pillaged, now you yourself are going to be pillaged. Just as you ransacked, so you are going to be ransacked. All of her treasures are going to be found out. These steep and jagged mountains, they aren't going to be able to conceal all of her money. All her wealth, right? This this God that she trusted in. It was all going to come crashing down. Dear Christian, is there not something for us here this morning? You realize that you and I are citizens of the richest nation in the history of the world. Should we not tremble? Are we not ourselves prone to trust in our wealth? Do we not at times even elevate wealth to the place of deity? How quickly do our 401ks become our savior? For for many, it wasn't all that long ago, Bitcoin was going to be salvation. Not anymore. But be honest. How often do we think of our money in terms of a safety net? We even talk like that. It's something that will protect us. It's something that will provide for us. It's something that will meet our needs. Now, to be clear, wealth is not bad. In fact, Scripture teaches us that wealth is a good gift that comes from the hand of our benevolent Father. But please hear me. There is a vast difference between faithful stewardship and faithless self-sufficiency. It is possible for you to work hard, for you to be richly blessed, for you to thank God, for you to be generous, for you to have nice things, and for you to not make zeros and decimals your God and praise God for it. But let us be on guard. Let us be on guard because so many of us can so quickly write a check or swipe a piece of plastic. It's just muscle memory. Few, if any of us, have ever really been in need. We've been in want, sure. But been in actual need? Probably not. We're quick to swipe the card, transfer funds, invest in this, diversify that. We're quick to do those things. Are we as quick to hit our knees in prayer? Do we cry out to God with the same zeal that we follow our stocks? Let me just ask you directly. Are you trusting in Christ or are you trusting in your bank account? One is your Savior. The other, you have to understand, is a potential idol. One will deliver. The other will damn. 
Let me mention still a second idol, and that is word. And what I mean by that is this, the word of others. Verse 7 fleshes this out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Now, in the context of Obadiah, this is no doubt referring to Edom's military alliances, right? The agreements, the treaties, the words of its friends and allies. The phrase there that begins verse 7, all your allies, literally all the men of your covenant. It's speaking of those with whom Edom shook hands. Those who said, I've got your back, you've got my back. No matter what happens, we're going we're to help one another out. But notice the betrayal. Edom's allies, verse 7, have driven Edom to her borders, probably alluding to how Edom was lured out from the safety of her mountains. The next phrase in verse 7 indicates, those at peace with Edom have deceived her. And you see that language in verse 7 of, of eating bread together. Well, well, that communicates friendship, trust, again, alliance. But that was then. This is now. Now, Edom's allies have turned on her. Now, Edom is left completely alone. Those with whom she has covenanted, they have broke their word. And she has no one to help. Now, I will grant that few of us are in the position of Edom. <laughs> we're, we're not making treaties with other nations necessarily, and so few of us have any real chance of making gods out of someone else's word, right? Not so fast. How often do we put our trust in the relationships that we have with those around us? To be candid, how often do we expect mere mortals to be our gods? Husbands and wives do this stuff to one another all the time. They, they put absolute trust in the other as if that person is Christ. Or they'll set the bar so high for their spouse that only Christ could get there. Young people tend to do the same thing with their friends. You young people, it is so easy for you to invest almost godlike quality in your peers so that you desire their approval above anything. Whole churches do the same thing. With more and more denominations going off the rails, it's easy to see there are many churches that are barely treading water. Now, please understand, I am not intrinsically anti-denomination, but I am anti-attitudes like, well, I was born a Southern Baptist and I'll die a Southern Baptist. Or if you're like, there's only one church and that's the Methodist church. Or, if I can't be a part of the OPC, then I won't be a part of anything. If that's you, then brother or sister, you are very quickly going to find yourself disenfranchised. Or worse, you are going to find yourself committing idolatry. And that's because our allegiance isn't ultimately to a denomination. Our allegiance is to Christ. 
Same goes for so-called celebrity pastors. Just where we sit here in the Tri-Cities, two notable examples immediately come to mind. The corpses that were left in the wake of scandals like those of Mark Driscoll and Art Azurdia are truly tragic. And they are heartbreaking and they are without excuse. But as Christians, we have to be careful that we do not idolize such men. We have to be careful that we do not put ourselves in a position so that our faith rises or falls depending upon what this internet preacher does. All men have feet of clay. All men are men at best. And the moment that you forget that is the moment that you are flirting with idolatry. I mean, we know this. We, we, We know this. We know that people are fallible. We know that people are sinful. We know that people often break their promises. So Christian... Be careful that you don't put all of your trust in someone's word. Instead, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ because he will never, no never, break his word. Let's press on now to a third idol in Edom that had to be toppled. Wisdom. And here we might qualify it as worldly wisdom. Pick it up with me this time in verse 8. Because we read... The Lord speaking, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? What will the Lord do, you ask? Well, he will confound those with fat heads and advanced degrees. He will make the wise foolish. And to be more precise, the phrase there in verse 8, wise men, it most likely refers to political officers. So step back, and it's the idea of, of God taking all the trusted sources, all the intelligence officials, all the czars, right? All the oversight committees, all those in the know, and he makes them ignorant. We know this, sin makes you stupid, And these guys, they might have been smart, but they were not wise. We find ourselves in something of a similar situation today, do we not? We are a people who have knowledge in spades, but wisdom is far and few between. You realize in your very pocket on your smartphone, you have more knowledge than King Solomon and more servants than King David at your disposal. And yet, common sense ain't that common anymore, is it? We might find ourselves tempted to run to the experts. There are those who want the government to save us. They can solve all of our problems. Some might think, well, well, our salvation is really found in the public school system. Others would advocate, we must at all costs listen to the health district. They are our savior. In a group like this, you might be tempted to throw your lot in with the GOP or some other political entity. Surely they can save us. We think just because someone is on TV and they have a smile and a tie that they must have our best interest in mind. Or perhaps you go the other route, you turn inward and cynical like me. 
in the face of institutional distrust, we've all become experts in almost every field. Have you noticed that? We read one or two headlines, we fire off a couple of emails, and we pick it on the corner. After giving it about three minutes of briefly reading an article, we think, I've got the intellectual chop to solve this thorny dilemma. People spin themselves up. They give themselves ulcers. They do all of this relying on their own wisdom. But again, do we ever turn to Christ? Do we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God? Do we actually entrust ourselves to the one who knows all things? Just imagine for a moment the time and energy that so many expend in trying to get a particular man or woman elected into a particular office. Imagine if you and I spent that much time and that much energy seeking to know God. Think, what would God do in our midst if we repented as vigorously as we tweeted? How much more of God's blessing would we experience if we hated our own personal sin as much as we hate the opposing political party? Let me just, just be honest. How much wiser would we be if we got off Google and Facebook and Instagram and actually immersed ourselves in the Word of God? John Piper said not that long ago that one of the purposes that social media serves is that on the last day, it will take away the excuse that we never had time to pray. Allow me to mention one final idol that plagued Edom. That's weapons. You see it in verse 9. It says, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau <clears throat> will be cut off by slaughter. Let me just give her, offer two quick points of clarification. The reference there to Teman, that was the name of a major Edomite city in the northern part of the country. That would be like Seattle for Washington. They sort of go interchangeably. If, if you tell somebody in California that you're moving to Washington, they, they say you're moving to Seattle, right? So, so Teman and Edom, those are just synonyms. The other clarification revolves around the two words there that the ESV has rendered mighty men. That's a reference to soldiers. And it could be either Edomite soldiers or it could be the hired guns of verse 7, the allies that they sort of put their trust in. Either way, what we're talking about is military power, right? But what will come of these mighty men, these army rangers, this SEAL Team 6? Well, they will be, verse 9, dismayed. In other words, they'll be weak. They'll be afraid. Ultimately, they will be demoralized, and their being demoralized, it will result in their being destroyed. Or, to use the rather graphic language there at the end of verse 9, they will be cut off by slaughter. You see, Edom trusted in her swords, in her shields, in her horses. She trusted in her military strength. She thought it would be enough to save her. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do we not face similar temptations even today? 
with our tanks and with our missiles and with our nuclear weapons. As Americans, are we not tempted to think just like Edom that we are invincible? Sure, there's bad stuff happening on the other side of the world, but that's the other side of the world. Not here, not in our country, not in our own backyard. But let us remember, God has a way of humbling us, doesn't he? Should we have a military? Should we defend our borders? Should we project strength? Sure. But we mustn't make the fatal error of assuming that those in camouflage are our gods. They aren't. We have only one God, and he is to be our rock, and he is to be our fortress. I suppose what I hope and pray that we would see from the prophet Obadiah this morning is that these idols, at the end of the day, they are cheats. This is what idols are. They're liars. They make promises that they can never deliver on. What, what do they offer but, but fullness? And they give emptiness. They promise life, but they only give death. Like a, like a carrot dangled out in front. They promise heaven, but what idols do is ultimately drag us to hell. But Christian, you know that Christ is better. You know that Christ is all that you need. You know that Christ is perfect and glorious and he is enough. And therefore, we should love him and serve him and obey him and trust him and look to him and stake our very lives upon him. And we should give up chasing the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we should Right now, repent of our sins. Repent of chasing those idols. And we should run to Jesus. Because again, Jesus is enough. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy. Thinking back specifically to those four idols that plagued Edom, let me just briefly show you how Christ is better. How Christ is all our hearts need. So circle back to the first one, beginning with wealth. Here's what we need to hear. Christ is better than wealth. Or maybe to ratchet it up, Christ is our wealth. What do I mean? Well, think of it this way. No amount of money will pay the biggest debt you owe. And that debt is not owed to the IRS or to some school loans or something like that. The biggest debt that we are facing is the debt of our sin. And you and I cannot write that check. Proverbs 11.4 warns us, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. So when you and I stand before Christ on Judgment Day, there will be no examining of our portfolios to see how diversified they were. There will be no talk of whether you became a millionaire or a thousandaire or a hundredaire. All that will matter is whether or not the debt of your sin has been paid. Perhaps you heard the old joke about the man who, right before his death, converted all of his assets to gold and stuffed them into his casket. When the man died the next day, he found himself gold in hand, standing before St. Peter at the pearly gates. 
Peter was somewhat confused by the whole situation, so he got on his walkie-talkie. He called up the boss and said, Boss, there's a guy standing here with a sack full of gold wanting to get into heaven. What should I do? God came back on the walkie-talkie, let him in. To which Peter responded, Boss, that's fine, whatever you say goes. I just don't know why this guy would want to bring a bunch of paving stones into heaven. Now that story is old and riddled with heresy. But it does make something of a solid point. All that will matter on that day is if your sin is forgiven. And only Christ can do that. Only Christ's righteousness delivers on that day. And and Christ's righteousness, the, the gift that is the gospel, we lay hold of it one way and one way only, and that is by grace alone through faith alone. We do not show up to the pearly gates, as it were, with our W-2s. We come empty-handed. We come clinging only to Christ. We come believing the promises of the gospel and nothing else. We come confessing Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But dear Christian, that is not our full confession. That's only half the verse. The other half is better. Don't leave it off. The wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what you and I need to understand as we inhabit the richest nation in the history of the world is that Christ is better than the idol of wealth. And Christ is better than any and everything that your wealth or my wealth could ever get for us. Because Christ pays for our sin. And that is the biggest need that we have. Christ is also better than someone's word. Why? Well, you get this. You live in the same world that I do. We live in a world of a multitude of broken promises. But Christ will never break His promise. Christ will always and forever keep His covenant. You understand, don't you, that Christ will never desert us? Not ever. Do you remember the the great promise of the covenant found throughout Scripture? The promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Christ adds to it, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, sometimes Christians think that Jesus is like AWOL. We sometimes think that Jesus is trying to juke us, he's trying to get away. It's not true. Christ will never break his word. He will never renege on his promises. You never have to worry about Jesus holding his fingers behind his back and crossing them. That's not Jesus. As the old 19th century hymn taught us to sing, Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Christian, in a world where everyone and everything changes, you must set your affections upon the unchangeable Christ. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
Christ is also far superior to worldly wisdom. Even more remarkable, Christ is our wisdom. Christian, don't think for a moment that your wisdom saves you. Don't think for a moment that your so-called perfect theology or your intellectual prowess means anything when you come to die. In fact, your wisdom, it might very well be a hindrance. Why do I say that? Because Scripture speaks specifically of the foolishness of the gospel over and against the wisdom of the world. Can we be honest and just recognize how foolish the gospel is? Do you realize how like bat guano nuts the gospel sounds? The unregenerate, they think we are crazy. You're telling me that some virgin gave birth in some backwoods part of the country some 2,000 years ago to some nobody Jew, and I'm supposed to care? And, and you're telling me that this whole nobody Jew, he ended up getting placarded to a Roman cross like a thousand other Jews did at that time, and somehow that has something to do with me today and my eternity? That's nuts, you guys. That is absolutely nuts. And then you hear ringing in your ears, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. My friend, take all your learning all your worldly wisdom, all your degrees, all your pedigree, all you've done, all you've accomplished, all you've been congratulated for, and flush it down the toilet. Count it as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Put all of your hope and all of your trust in the foolishness of the gospel, in the counterintuitive idea that Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And then rest confidently in Him. Because in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It sounds like Christ did everything. You're right. 1 Corinthians 1.31, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You don't boast in your worldly wisdom. The only thing you can boast in is the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ crucified for you. Everything else is garbage. Finally, let's make sure that we see that Christ is better than any weapon, any SEAL Team 6. Here's the deal. We may be exposed to all manner of trials and tribulations. As Christians, we are not immune to problems or persecution. In fact, we are actually told that such things will follow us like a shadow. So we should expect, especially if you are living as a faithful Christian, you should expect to have a target on your back. But the fiercest weapon that could ever be pointed at us 
Christ has already defeated it. Because it is the grave which stalks each and every one of us. And it is the grave that has been conquered by our Savior. He faced God's wrath for us. He faced death for us. He died the death that we deserve for our sin. And then three days later, He got up. He he overcame. And the promise of Christ to His people is this. So you too will overcome. Christian, death is not the final word for us. You know what the final word is? Glory. Resurrection. Immortality. Eternal life. That is what Christ won for us in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. So Christian, don't fear. Don't fear anything. And especially don't fear death. Because we live in light of our Lord's empty tomb. And so in the face of death, by God's grace, we can echo Paul's words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Our Father, we join together this morning under the banner of Christ's love and lordship. And we pray, we ask that though you would be kind and gentle and patient with us, that you would see fit for our good and for your glory to trash our idols, to to wreck them, to crush them, and to cause us to drink them down, that we might see how bitter they are and how beautiful Christ is. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.